Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three, and this hopefully will be part three of three on what's hot on CT. And uh, there's a good article written by Satomi Kawamoto, most recently on the uh, use of CT in patients who've undergone urinary diversion. Very nice article looking at some of the um, complications that we can see in patients, so for anywhere from recurrence to obstruction. Uh, again, urinary diversion procedures typically improve or replace function of urinary bladder in patients with either cancer, neurogenic bladder dysfunction, detrusor overactivity, or chronic inflammatory disease. And there are a number of different surgeries, incontinent cutaneous diversions, continent cutaneous catheterization reservoirs or a pouch, or this orthotopic neobladder, which we're seeing more common of. Typically, complications divide into two parts under 30 days. The typical post-op complications from ileus to infection to post-op collections, be it urinomas or seromas or hematomas, to urinary tract complications like leaks or complications occurring up to 30.9% of cases with ileus being the most common complication. And those are sort of what you might expect in the 30-day period. Beyond 30 days or late complications, we think, see things like stone formation, infection, reflux, and obstruction. CT is very good, particularly with 3D mapping. This article by Dr. Kawamoto very nicely shows this, and I'll just show you a few images where we can reconstruct from CT urography very nice visualizations of the patient's ileal loop, for example. You go in there, you remove the bone, and you can see very nicely the details of what you can visualize, volume rendering and MIP in this case, and so it's very easy to look for complications. Okay, very nice example. A number of other things that have been written this past month revolve around radiation dose. A couple articles looking about decreasing dose and looking for stones. Um, making the point that you can decrease exposure by literally up to about 70%. Uh, which, you know, is good, particularly we do lots of screening studies. Uh, one comment by the article, however, is that small stones can be difficult. Two-millimeter stones can easily be missed. Now, of course, you can miss them if you're using five-millimeter thick sections anyway. But um, their article said that uh, reduced radiation protocols resulted in similar detection of stones three millimeters or larger compared with standard protocols while reducing dose 70%. Again, uh, the issue is you can miss small stones. Just something to be aware of. You're not going to miss a critical stone, but you can't really exclude stone disease in that protocol. No surprise, the images are noisy, larger patients, mid part of the body. Very easy to miss small stones. Another series of articles Pam Johnson wrote was looking at uh, different parts about CT of the kidneys, making the point that it's very easy to miss renal masses, and it's very easy to detect renal masses. It's all a matter of how well you do the study. And attention to data acquisition, reconstruction, and display indeed becomes very important. And here's this article in the recent AJR. Another article she wrote was optimizing detectability of renal pathology with uh, CT, looking at protocol pearls and pitfalls. And in that article, making the statement, again, uh, there are a number of pitfalls that can be avoided. Uh, technique becomes very, very critical. Some points made in the article, I just had a few of the points, and it's worthwhile reading. Under distension or inadequate opacification of the ureter can prevent uh, missing of small transitional cell carcinomas. 
Uh, again, we talk about about five minutes to six minutes post-injection is a good timing. If you get very late images, then the images may show artifact because the contrast is too dense, and then you're in danger of missing small lesions for that uh, reason. So, again, uh, those are one of the pitfall areas. Article also talked about uh, altered perfusion on nephrographic or excretory contrast enhanced acquisitions. What actually appears regions of hyperattenuation if you image later. And I thought I'd show you a good example of that. Here was a patient with a chest CT, and this was the lowest scan. And we saw changes in the right kidney. We felt this was probably due to a polynephritis. Here was the actual coronal views. That's a very good call. But the referring docs had no suspicions for polynephritis, although it was eventually proven, and eventually the urinalysis is positive. But here's the delayed scans, and you can see the patchy increased areas of uh, contrast in the patient's right kidney correspond very nicely to what was the areas of decreased attenuation on the early phase imaging. And here's just a few more images axially and coronally. So if you do get delayed scans ever, for whatever reason, or you have a patient who had a prior CT or MR scan, and you see this retention of contrast in this type of pattern, you better be thinking about acute polynephritis. The articles uh, also looked at different things, looking at uh, different phases, what phases would be good for specific things, uh, um, and again, looking at non-contrast CTs, where it would be helpful from high-density renal cysts to uh, renal calculi, looking at early phase imaging, which we've spoken about before, looking at arterial structures, looking at vascularity and changes in perfusion, while uh, a bit later in the nephrographic phase, we think about polynephritis, we think about venous structures from renal vein to IVC. And then, of course, later phase, we talk about transitional cell and things that are best seen uh, in, on late phase imaging. So again, very, very important uh, you know, thing to be aware of. And again, a very nice article to review. There are also articles looking uh, at partial nephrectomy. We see lots of partial nephrectomy these days. We also see lots of RF ablation. Talking about the different findings that can occur. Uh, talking about, of course, what happens later on. Um, most findings that we see early are fluid collection, seromas, hematomas. Uh, again, looking at some of the things not to confuse them with tumor recurrence. And uh, Heck makes the point that almost all post-operative collections decrease in size or completely resolve over time. Collections there for laparoscopic surgery may persist longer, some up to three years. So again, making the point is be very careful before you call recurrence. And post-partial nephrectomy, kidney displacement, perinephric stranding, parenchymal defect, non-facutating post-operative collection, significant more posterior renal displacement are all normal findings. And again, you could see these two or three years out. Be very careful in terms of calling recurrence. Another article that makes this point about confusion post-procedure relates to post-RF ablation and talks about something called the halo sign. That a halo sign can persist over time. Now, what's a halo sign? Well, it's this low density around an area of ablation of fat, which almost, when you look quickly, looks like an angiomyelopoma. And you can see this article makes the point that you can confuse it with an AML if you're not familiar with RFA post-procedure appearances. I don't think you should have that problem because you have a history, but uh, halo sign definition, post-ablation appearance has been described previously as a band or a halo, a fibrotic halo of fat, and a bullseye surrounding treated renal tumors. Uh, 
And again, the point they made is not to confuse it with other processes. And just to show you an example, here it is in the right kidney, non-contrast. There you see the ablation zone, which has a bit of high density present. Here it is again on arterial phase imaging. And here it is arterial phase in coronal display. And here it is on the uh, later phase. So you can see very nice rim, fat, hypodense. When you see this, it means the patient has no recurrence. Do not confuse it with recurrence. It's a halo sign, very nice example. Classic post-RF ablation, normal finding. What else have I read this last couple of months? Trauma, a number of different articles about trauma, looking at a number of different things, talking about pelvic injury. Remember, we spoke about pelvic trauma before. Again, making the point that it's very important in terms of morbidity and mortality. 40% of patients with pelvic fractures have a major bleed. Mortality up to 15% in this population. And death from hemorrhage typically occurs early. There's a range of vascular injuries from extravasation, arterial, to occlusion, to intimal injury, to pseudoaneurysms, AV fistula, and even venous phase imaging. And uh, this article and an article by um, Cortez does make the point that pelvic CT angiography is extremely important in this group of patients. And we've made the point before that CTA can find all of these complications. And it's important to recognize that it's very easy for complications to be missed on a non-contrast CT. So using contrast is very helpful. And again, from a dose perspective, can indeed be very helpful. Other articles this month also looked at bladder trauma, looking at the different categories from contusion to intraperitoneal rupture to extraperitoneal rupture to combined injury. And some of the facts, 80% of patients with bladder injuries due to trauma have pelvic fractures. Approximately 30% of patients with pelvic fractures have bladder injury. So you can see when you have a pelvic fracture, you need to be very, very careful. The dome is most commonly injured with trauma and is the weakest part of the bladder. And intraperitoneal injuries are about uh, one-third of bladder injuries and extraperitoneal, about two-thirds. Now, I mentioned bladder trauma, and this is typically when you think about MVAs, but we also see bladder trauma other situations. We've seen a number of cases in patients with robotic prostatectomies. You need to have high suspicion. Here's non-contrast CT. There's some fluid in the pelvis. Maybe that's just some blood. Here it is sagittally. But once you do a CT cystogram, 500 cc's of contrast dripped under gravity into the bladder, you can see very nicely in this case, there's extraperitoneal and intraperitoneal contrast extravasation. And the intraperitoneal component is particularly impressive in this example. Very important, uh, we see the prostatic injuries at the base of the bladder. Often in the prostatic urethra is where the process occurs. And you can see it very nicely in this example. Last thing I'll comment on, or I think the last thing, is vascular applications. And just to look at a few things you might want to think about. We do something called DIP flap planning at Hopkins. It's basically preoperative breast reconstructive surgery planning, looking to find the deep inferior epigastric arteries. The deep inferior epigastric artery supplies perforators that go through the rectus abdominis muscle. And this is what the surgeon needs to find when they're going to do procedures. Article by Clavero, MDCT provides valuable information before surgery about the arterial anatomy of the inferior abdominal wall. It enables accurate identification of the most suitable dominant perforated vessel and makes surgery 
surgical perforator flap procedures faster and safer. In fact, in this article, they mentioned the average time saved for patient is one hour and 40 minutes. And plus, you had a reduction in surgical complications and post-surgical complications. So very, very important to look at this. The elevation of the flap lasted an average of four hours because the step included the section, selecting the vessel, the section, now under two hours. So again, very, very important, very good article about this. Um, the article also does make the point that they found a clear decrease in the number of postoperative complications, mainly partial necrosis of the flap, partial necrosis of the flap diminished from 12% to 2%. So very, very impressive. Now, what techniques do we do? We do lots of DIEP flap uh, protocols at Hopkins. 100 ml of Visipec injected at 4 cc's. We scan from about 5 cm above the umbilicus to the lesser trochanter. Scan delay of about 30 seconds or triggered at about 200, depending on the system. Thin sections are used for reconstructions. And a couple articles from Hopkins. Uh, our experience, our first 23 flaps, uh, the reconstruction plan changed in three, pa in three patients, or 18%. Uh, again, the, the classic way to do this with ultrasound. CT is more accurate. Preoperative perforated flap planning for breast reconstruction utilizing 3D CT is safe, easy to read, and can change the operative plan. So we do this routinely, and here's just... The reference and let me show you some examples I do these 3d maps you can see the umbilicus and I'll show you how we look at the perforators coming up and you can see its relationship to the umbilicus I mark where the best perforator is its relationship above or below the umbilicus right or left I try to show as many good vessels as possible and again volume rendering in this situation is very nice to show you the orientation of the perforators and their relationship and here's some mapping and just some very nice examples. Another thing we're able to do, and this is in press in an article, is calculate the volume of what that flap would look like. We can use a volume program to determine what the volume of the flap would be. And this is well over 95% correlated with what we can see at surgery. So now surgeons can determine in advance what size flap they want. Will it be enough? Will it be the right size? So again, preoperative planning becomes very important. So a really good application and something we're looking at uh, much more commonly. The last thing I'll comment on, and I think every cutting-edge talk these days needs to look at radiation dose, just a few points. Everyone's looking at the ways of decreasing dose without decreasing quality of study. So some examples. Uh, for coronary CTA, you could potentially limit the area you scan by using the non-contrast CT if you're doing calcium scoring to limit the field that you scan. In this article, it decreased uh, the dose by 16% by allowing a smaller area to be scanned. Okay? Very simple thing. Uh, something to think about. Uh, article by Bischoff talking about it's necessary to adapt a scan protocol for each patient with every possible strategy for dose reduction. And in fact, a combination of several dose reduction algorithms is often feasible. So little things help a lot. So for example, ECG controlled tube current modulation, adaptive pitch, 100 kV, sequential scanning, large detectors, high pitch mode are all things that can be done. 
And you can see when you do these, uh, indeed, it can be very, very helpful. Uh, we want to make certain that we do the most accurate thing possible. I showed you this before about looking at stone studies, decreasing dose from 100 to 30 MAS, uh, decrease the dose by about 70%. We mentioned some of the limitations, particularly for small stones, so I will not go through that again. But just to be aware, these are the possibility of things we look at. Finally, an article by Strauss, an article that I think everybody should look at, looking at 10 steps for radiologists and techs uh, to improve image quality or maintain image quality while reducing dose. Number one thing is increased awareness and understanding of CT radiation dose issues among technologists. Very important. And you can see the things that are mentioned. Accreditation, appropriate imaging strategies, baseline radiation dose, child sizing studies. These comments are made for children but are also made for the adults. The best study is a study that's designed specifically for that patient. So again, very, very important um, things to recognize. We also recognize practically that uh, different scanners give different doses, and there was an article by Jaffe making the point that in their institution, depending what scanner they used, the protocols varied by uh, mean effective dose for PE studies range from 9.9 to 18.5 millisieverts, and for chest, abdomen, and pelvis from 6.7 to 18.5. And one scanner was better than the other. Now, this will vary institution by institution, but it does make the point that uh, we need to look and get the best scanners with the lowest dose in order to optimize our protocols. So again, you may only have one scanner, and so you need to optimize it for that scanner, but it does make the point that in the future, I think we'll be buying scanners very commonly to look at the best dose that is indeed possible. So hopefully I've showed you a number of things. Here's a picture of the Great Wall when I was in China a couple weeks ago. Hopefully we have some really good pearls, some really good pitfalls to avoid, some comments about radiation dose, and some things that really we need to think about on a daily basis. And with that, have a great day.